Thank you to the Hip family for our beautiful worship tonight, to Janice and David. Turn your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles. We're in chapter 20 tonight. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. Chapter 19, you remember that we had a riot there in Ephesus. We're on Paul's third missionary journey, and during this third missionary journey, he is three years in Ephesus. So it's not as much journey-like as is the first missionary journey. But Ephesus is the central location from which he does his ministry. And we'll see his sort of last contact with that congregation in Ephesus tonight. Well, I, while he was in Ephesus, there, he was preaching against idols and the silversmiths who made miniature shrines of the shrine to Artemis, and they sold these as souvenir pieces and something of little idols, or good luck pieces themselves. Well, that whole trade came under threat by the preaching of the gospel. So we see there in chapter 19 and verse 23 that there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Now in the Acts of the Apostles, Christianity is called the way and we are called followers of the way. There was a huge disturbance and there's something of a silversmith's union and they're all upset and they're looking for Paul and well, they began to shout out, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Didn't want anything to threaten the goddess's popularity because they wanted to sell the shrines. And really, it's about to be a mob riot until one of the city officials stands up and says to Demetrius and his comrades, if you have something against the followers of the way, you need to take them to court. No one's questioning Artemis's importance. And that was the end of it and the end of, of, verse, of chapter 19 and verse 41. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. The threat was that if the riot got out of control, then Ephesus would lose some of their freedoms under the Roman Empire and Rome would come in and take away those freedoms so they could not risk having a riot there. Well, now we're in chapter 20 and let's look at the first three verses. And after the uproar had ceased, that's the uproar in the arena there in Ephesus over the silver shrines and the silversmiths versus the followers of the way versus Paul. So after the uproar is over in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, the disciples in Ephesus, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. There are three major areas on this missionary trip. There's Asia, where we're in right now, and the key city is Ephesus. There's Macedonia, where he's traveling next, and that is the key city is Philippi. There's some others, but that's the key cities. And there's Achaia, or Greece, and the main city is Corinth. So those three cities in those three regions are the key players in this particular chapter this evening. So he's leaving Asia and Ephesus and he's going to Macedonia and eventually to Achaia uh, to, to Corinth itself. And when he had gone through those districts, he gave them much exhortation and he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And so there we are 
speaking already of Corinth, and he is there for three months, when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, that's back to Antioch where he starts his missionary journeys, he determined instead to return back through land going through Macedonia. So in verses 1 and 2, we have a most summary treatment or fashion of Paul's taking leave in Ephesus and journeying through Macedonia to Greece, that is to Corinth. Now, one could read 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7 in conjunction with reading Acts 20 because then that gives us a, a fuller picture. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, we read these words. And this very thing I wrote to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. So besides the Corinthian letters that we have reserved in our canon or in our New Testament, there's at least one other one, maybe two other ones. And here we have a reference to what we call the sorrowful letter or the tearful letter. He writes this letter right before he gets there here in Acts chapter 20 and verse 2. What has happened to the Apostle Paul is he has broken fellowship with some of his opponents there in the city of Corinth. So he tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4, For out of much affliction of anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you sh should be made sorrowful, but you might know the love which I have especially for you. So we have this confrontive letter. Now back to Acts chapter 20. We have this confrontive letter that Paul writes, a harsh letter, trying to set them straight regarding his apostleship before he gets there. And therefore, when he gets there, he hopes that the letter itself would have cleared the way for a good time a fellowship. So we have this letter written, the painful letter, or the letter written with many tears. They received that letter before this three-month visit referred to here in Acts chapter 20 and verse 2. The letter was carried by Titus, and Paul wanted to hear back from Titus before he himself made the trip. So you, you feel the tensions what they have said, if you read 2 Corinthians, what they're saying about Paul is this. Paul, you're not a real apostle because you suffer. If you were a real apostle, then you wouldn't have the suffering in your life that you have. And that's where we get kind of Paul's list of all the sufferings that he had. And he says to them that his suffering does not disprove his apostleship, but rather affirms his apostleship. He refers to them, I think, pejoratively as super apostles, that he might have suffered, but you super apostles haven't suffered. Of course, they were not apostles at all. So he's having this conflict with those who are criticizing him because of the suffering that he's had in his life. And that's where he gives us the list of his shipwrecks and his beatings and all the hardships that he's faced and worrying about the churches and all the grief that he has. But then he says that his, he is suffering along with Christ and his suffering does not disprove his position as apostle, but rather establishes 
his position as apostle. And he says to those super apostles, I think pejoratively again, sarcastically, that they have arrived and he hopes he can be where they are someday because they are so powerful and mighty in the gospel. There is tension in Corinth between Paul, the founder of the church, and these super apostles are these enemies that have taken over in his absence. And so he wants to know now, remember, Corinth was the center of his second missionary journey, Ephesus III. He had been in Corinth for 18 months or so. He had a, a strong relationship, but when he left, these so-called super apostles had taken over the congregation, or at least they, they thought they had. So he sends Titus with this painful, tearful letter, and he wants to know, how'd it go? When they read my letter... Did they fall back in line? When I get there, am I going to have a fight? In fact, he, in 2 Corinthians, he actually kind of threatens them. You better not have that attitude when I show up is kind of the tone of that letter. And so how did it go? Now, Paul seems to be mightier of pen than he is in person. So he wants to straighten out with a treatise or a letter. So when he gets there, that the relationship is good. And so now imagine... He's on his way to Philippi, and he's wondering. He's stopping first at Troas. He wants to know, if Titus is on the way back, how did it go? Did they allow me back to be the apostle with the authority? Am I going to have conflict when I get there? How's it going to go? Well, so now he's taking leave of Ephesus. He set out from Macedonia. He's trying to meet Titus on the way back, having delivered the tearful letter to the Corinthians. And, well, he wants to know how, how things have gone. He hopes that he can find Titus at Troas, which is on the way before Macedonia, before Philippi. But he doesn't see him there. And, well, then he finally met up with Titus returning from Corinth in Philippi. And Titus brings the joyful news that the letter had the attended impact. The offenders have been disciplined by the church, these so-called super apostles. And the church have been reconciled to Paul. And therefore, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we have these good words that he loves them and he's ready to be reconciled to them. And evidently... At that point, having received that information that they have been reconciled, that's when he sits down and writes 2 Corinthians. And so when he gets there for these three months of Acts chapter 20, when he gets there then, it's all good. And they've already received 2 Corinthians, which is more healing than it was uh, this tearful or painful letter. Now, why Luke didn't give us all that outline, I don't know, but he wished, I wish that he had. But now you kind of know how the Corinthian correspondence fits in to the Acts of the Apostles chapter 20. And while he's in these three months at Corinth, that's probably the time that he actually wrote perhaps his greatest letter, A.D. 55-56, actually wrote the epistle to the church at Rome. So there he is, three months there, writing the Roman letter to the church at Rome. Now, a major concern during all of this third missionary journey is this collection for the Jerusalem church. Now, Every time in these cities on this third missionary journey, this is his project. And Paul had already 
from the mother congregation that sends him out on the missionary journeys from the congregation at Antioch. He'd already taken a relief offering for the Jews that were in the midst of a, a famine. And now from the churches in Asia, he wants to take a offering from the Ephesus church, the church to whom Ephesians is written. And then Macedonia, there's several cities there, but there's Lydia who sells the purple, who has the money, and he wants to take an offering from the church at Philippi, and then he wants to take an offering from the church at Corinth, and he's going to combine all those together to meet a genuine need there in Jerusalem. But here's, here's the startling point. If they receive the offering from the Gentile churches... By receiving that money, they are saying, you're legitimate followers of Christ. We have given you the inheritance of our spiritual nature. The Jews have given to the Christians their Christ, their Christos, their Messiah. And now, having received that spiritual benefit, the Gentile Christians give them a physical or monetary benefit. And if they actually receive it with open hands and an open heart, then it is a stamp of approval on all the Gentile missions and all the churches that Paul has started. And the book of Romans. Next book in Romans 15, verse 25 through 33, we feel this tension that is in Paul's mind He's writing to the, he's in Corinth, writing the book of Romans. He's getting the offering from the Corinthian church. He's about to head out with that offering. And he's worried about how he's going to be received there in the church uh, in, in, in Jerusalem by the Jerusalem believers and by the Jews themselves. And so there's a quite a bit of anxiety about that. Well, in Romans 15, we listen to these words of anxiety concern, concerning the offering. But now... I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia, that would be Philippi and Lydia. And Achaia, that would be Corinth, where he's writing from right now. Have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So these are believers in Jerusalem who were experienced a famine, who are suffering in poverty. And so the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia, of course, some Jews in those churches, but predominantly Gentile, they want to make a contribution. And yes, verse 27, they were happy to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go by way of you to Spain. So Paul's plans, as he's going to go back to Syria, Antioch, his plan is to first, before he takes his missionary journey, we might call it the fourth journey to Spain, he wants to go first to Rome, but first he's going to Jerusalem. It doesn't make sense geographically, but he knows they need the offering. So he's going to go to Jerusalem first, and then he's going to go back to Rome. And I know when I come to you, the church in Rome, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Pray they'll take this offering. If they take the offering, then they've received the Gentile churches. He's worried. 
so I may come to you in joy and by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He is worried now back to Acts about will this offering be received? And of course, he ought to be worried because in Jerusalem he gets arrested. So there's a lot of tensions there. How will the Jewish believers receive me? How will the Jews receive me? And the Jews did not receive him well. And he is arrested in Rome by the Romans and finds himself in prison. He's transported to various prisons. But it all happens about this worry that he has there uh, as he's on this chapter 20 in the Acts of the Apostles. Well, look at 3b through 6. And against the Jews that he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return to Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, and the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. Now, Thessalonica would also be a Macedonia, so it's Philippi and Thessalonica there. They're giving an offering. And Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. That would be the Ephesians. Now, what on earth does he have all these people for traveling with him? Why are we picking up all these people all of a sudden to travel with him? The answer is found in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 18, we find out exactly why Paul is carrying with him all of those that he's carrying with him. And the reason is that they're going to go with him. And as they travel with him, they're going to guard the offering as he goes. They're appointed. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 19. And not only this, but he's also appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our readiness. This is in 1 Corinthians as well. In other words, as the church at Philippi took up an offering, they sent a representative to travel with the offering. There was some physical comfort and having more bodies with that much money, but also they could give an account. There was an audit of the offering. Well, someone from Thessalonica went with the offering and someone from Asia went through the offering. So all these names, these new traveling companions, they are there because they are guarding and keeping account of this large offering that's going to Jerusalem. But these had gone on ahead. Now, who are these in verse 5? I think it's just Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia because they are going to find a boat and they're from that area. And so they run on ahead of the crowd to their own region to be able to find a place for them to find a boat to move forward to make their travels. For they were waiting for us at Troas. And we sail from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and we came to Troas within five days and we were there seven days. So he's there at Troas for a seven-day period. And this voyage to Troas took five days. Paul is preoccupied with this collection with all these gentlemen who are accompanying him to go to Jerusalem to guard the offering, to give an account of it. And it's sort of a mystery why Luke does not speak about this offering because that's exactly what's going on here. And that's why we have all of these details and these names. Well, when he gets to Troas, he begins to preach. Verse 7. And on the first day of the week. Now let's stop right there. 
Why should we be surprised at those words? Because Paul is a Jew. And Paul should be worshiping on the last day of the week on the Sabbath. This is one of the early records or occurrences we have of worship being transformed from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And on the first day of the week, so there takes them five days to get there. They're waiting on this boat. They're there seven days. And so he gets to be with them on the first day of the week. They were gathered together to break bread. And Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day. Now, this is an early look into worship. It's happening on the first day of the week. It is happening on Sunday because that's the day of the resurrection, which transformed Christian worship. And as they're gathered together, we see them doing two things. They're breaking the bread. They're doing something of the Lord's Supper. And Paul is preaching two important elements to early worship, the Lord's Supper and preaching. And so Paul begins talking to them, intending to depart the next day. Paul, this is his last shot. He's going to get on the boat and leave them the next day. So Paul's going to give them all he's got. And so Paul begins to preach. And he preaches. And he preaches. And he preaches. Look what it says at the end of verse 7. He prolonged his message until midnight. Uh, he didn't have a countdown clock like we do here at First Baptist Church Amarillo. We're live here April the 19th in the sanctuary on the radio I have 17 minutes and eight seconds left in this message in Acts chapter 20. It might have been a good idea if they had taken an offering and bought Paul a countdown clock because he didn't have one. He prolonged his message until midnight. Look, verse 8. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Now, you know lamps put off carbon monoxide or an oil or a fume or something that kind of makes you tired. Midnight makes me tired, but if that wasn't bad enough, we've got the exhaust going off from these lamps, these oil lamps there where they are preaching. And there's a certain young man there by the name of Eutychus. Now Eutychus finds him a windowsill up high, way up high in this place of worship. And Eutychus is listening to Paul, and he thinks, surely he'll be through in a minute, and Paul is not through. And he thinks, well, surely he'll be through in another 20 minutes, and he's not through. And the way I've envisioned it is there's Eutychus way up high, sitting in the windowsill. It's an open window, of course. He's sitting in the windowsill, and Paul is preaching, and he's following Paul. Now, I would like to think if I had the opportunity to hear Paul preach, I would sit on the edge of my seat way past midnight. But Eutychus didn't realize the historical opportunity that he had. It was midnight and he was sleepy. And I, I kind of imagine he's with Paul for a while. And you know when you're trying to listen to somebody and then you kind of, they start drifting in the back. And just kind of picture Charlie Brown's teacher. Paul is talking about Judaism and the Christ. And all of a sudden, all Eutychus hears is wah, 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 wah. And the next thing you know, there's a thud and a scream. I imagine it's Eutychus' family that screams. There's a certain young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. All the fumes from the lamps, the continued preacher who will not hush. 
as Paul, notice it says he prolonged his message, verse 7. Look at verse 9. He kept on talking. It gets worse. I don't know if Luke had something in for Paul for him preaching too long, but he tells us three times that this sermon was too long. He preached until midnight, and then verse 9, Paul kept on talking. Eutychus is overcome by sleep. He just, and he fell down from the third floor. Now we have a, a, a sanctuary, the, the back, the, the crow's nest would be called a third floor. If you fall from that high, you're 30 feet or above, and you're going to die. And that's exactly what happens, verse 9. And he is picked up as dead. He's not injured. He's not knocked out. He is D-E-A-D. He is dead. Death by preaching. That might be uh, the first historical instance of a long sermon actually killing somebody. And it happened by the noblest of them all, by the Apostle Paul. He was picked up dead. Paul went down. He probably paused his sermon for just a minute. He's not done. He's not through the sermon yet. He paused the sermon for just a minute, went down and fell upon him. After embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And notice when he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and eaten. He talked for them a long while. So he goes down. This sounds like Jesus raising the widow's son at name or Jesus raising Jairus's daughter or Lazarus. But to me, it actually sounds more like Elijah or Elisha. You remember those Old Testament stories, one in 1 Kings and one in 2 Kings, when they lay upon a lad and somehow breathing life into the lad, the life is transferred from the prophet to the person. That's what this story sounds like to me because it says Paul went down and fell upon him. That's like Elijah. That's like Elisha, just as the prophets had done. For his life was in him. Do not be troubled, Paul says. We can call him up from the dead. And when he had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, look at verse 11. Paul talked to him for a long while. He kept going again. He preached until daybreak. He had just gotten started at midnight. He preached all night long. And so he departed. That was a sermon that lasted forever. Verse 12, they took the boy away alive and they greatly comforted him. If you can raise the dead, you can preach as long as you want to and people will sit there and listen. And they were willing to listen to what, what Paul had to say because God had used him to raise the dead. And the section that follows here, in verses 17 to the end, we have some conversation that he has with those who are in Ephesus. Verse 13, they were going ahead to the ship to Asus, and Paul goes by foot himself. He, met, he meets him there at Asus, verse 14. They took Paul on board, and they go to Mytilene, and sailing from there, they arrived the following day at Chios, and the next day they crossed over to Samos, and the following day they go to Miletus. Paul doesn't stop at Ephesus. He'd been there three years. He had left them, but it, instead he calls the the elders to come down to him because he's hurrying to Jerusalem. He wants to get there on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, he's, he sent to Ephesus in verse 17. He called the elders of the church and they came to him and he said to them, you yourselves know. Now I want you to imagine he'd been with them for three years. He doesn't have time to stop and visit with everybody in the church. 
He's got to get to Jerusalem with this money. He's got all these men who are traveling with him, who are helping him guard the offering, keeping an account of it. He calls the leaders, the elders, the overseers of the Ephesian church down to have conversation with him at Miletus. And so he addresses them and he gathers them together. Verse 18, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. I served the Lord and with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So the first thing he says is, you know that I served you faithfully in humility. And some of those times it was a suffering that was happening to me because of the Jews. And how, verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. You also know, secondly, that I taught you everything. I didn't hold anything back. I was open in my proclamation. I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that you need to know. And verse 21, thirdly, he says, I preached to everybody. Not only did I tell you everything, I told everything to everybody, both Jews and Greeks, verse 21. I called them for repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now bound in spirit, and I'm on my way to Jerusalem, look at verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's nervous. He's got all these men with him. He's got the offering. He doesn't know how it's going to go in Jerusalem. How will the Jewish Christians respond? How will the Jews themselves respond? Will there be a commotion? It's the festival time in Jerusalem. Verse 23, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He's been given divine insight that it might not go well in Jerusalem. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course. You remember what he says in 2 Timothy, upon the nearness of his death, I have finished the course. He has kept the faith. He sees here that he wants to finish the course. The ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Isn't that an interesting way to describe his preaching of the gospel of the grace of God? He calls it the gospel of the grace of God, and then he calls it preaching of the kingdom. That's not language we hear a lot from Paul. That's normally language we hear from Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he describes his preaching as preaching of the kingdom. Verse 25, I'm saying goodbye for the last time. Have you ever had a final farewell? Maybe around a hospital bed or a hospice bed. Man, those are tough farewells. Someone moving away, maybe to another country overseas and not sure they'll ever return. You will see my face no more. Therefore, you need to know, verse 26, I am innocent of the blood of all men. I preach gospel to all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then he admonishes them. 
I'm leaving you. You'll see my face no more. It's a sad farewell. You be on guard for yourselves and for the flock. He's talking to the elders, the leaders, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do not let the false teachers enter here like they've entered Corinth, he's saying. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. False teaching will enter. Remember, I spent three years training you. Remember what I've preached. I've told you everything about the preaching of the kingdom, about the gospel, the grace of God. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. I've prepared you for this. I gave you everything I had for three years. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not taken any gold or silver from you. In fact, he goes on to tell in verse 34, these hands right here, I repaired leather, I worked on tents, I took care of my needs, verse 34, and also the needs of my companions. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself has said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down, and prayed with them all. Their founder, their apostle, their father in the faith says, I don't feel good about going to Jerusalem. You're never going to see me again. I got to leave it with you. And they began to weep aloud, embrace Paul, and repeatedly kissed him it wasn't a handshake it was emotional it was a forever farewell Paul was afraid for his life he was afraid for the wolves that were coming into the congregation and the verb tense there they translate repeatedly kissed him that's capturing the sense of that verb tense it wasn't one kiss they just kept on and didn't want to say goodbye you've seen those airport scenes where someone's saying goodbye to someone else on the airplane and they hug and then they walk 10 more feet and they hug again and then they say goodbye again and man I am not good at that I just soon you move town and drop me a note I do not want to go through all that emotionally but Paul is going through that it is hard grieving especially over the word which he had spoken they would see his face no more and look they follow him all the way to the ship and they accompanied him all the way to the ship it's getting exciting we've got the offering it's on the boat. The men are with us. An emotional departure from the Ephesian elders. We're headed to Jerusalem. We'll find out what happens. Let us pray. Oh God, give us your grace and your peace.
And may we too cherish our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, which I, I think these hard days have stirred that in all of our hearts to see each other's faces again. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.